We're starting a new sermon series. Uh, we are going to be looking, usually we go through books of the Bible. We, we circle back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament books, different genres, prophets, Psalms, history, gospels, that kind of stuff. But once in a while, we, we also think it's important for us to do uh, more thematic uh, sermon series, uh, taking a look at particular ideas that are consistent, uh, repeated in scripture. And this sermon series is going to be uh, looking at a doctrine that's often called the doctrine of perseverance or the perseverance of the saints. The, the idea that in order to have saving faith, one must persevere until the end uh, or else they, they won't actually be saved. So we're going to look at various passages that actually teach this, this point. And so this morning we're going to start in the Gospels. We're going to start in Luke chapter 8. And we're going to look at the parable of the sower. And as we look at this passage, uh, we have to remind ourselves that the reason that farmers sow seed is so that they can reap a harvest. And we'll see in this passage that, that there's actually only one soil that is a part of the harvest at the end. Or in other words, there's only one soil that actually leads to salvation. So the way we're going to handle our, our time here this morning in Luke chapter 8, we're going to look at the one story that Jesus tells, and then we're going to walk through the four different soils that he explains as he talks about the story in more detail. So we'll look at the one story, and then we'll examine the four soils. So let's uh, get started. Luke chapter 8, let's look at the one story Jesus tells. We'll start in verse 4. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Luke chapter 8. If you don't, the scripture will be on the screen for you. Luke 8, starting verse 4, here's the story. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So Jesus tells a story to a big crowd about a farmer. So in our mind, we have ideas of what farming looks like. In the first century, the, the historical background is that what a farmer would do was go out to his field and when it, we hear the language of a path and rocky and thorny soil and good soil, we might have in our mind this idea uh, that it would be obvious, right? Like if you're at our Downs Road campus and you walk out to the back of our parking lot and you see there's like asphalt paths and then there's like a sand pit for volleyball and there's green grass and you think, oh, it'd be obvious to tell what kind of soil as you're walking you'd actually be putting the seed on. But in this context, what's more likely the case is that the farmer is walking along on his field, and it's not particularly obvious from his vantage point what the good soil actually is. This is made even more clear by the, the practice in the first century that, sow, that farmers would sow their seed all over the place, just throwing it out there. And then later, they would come back to actually plow the field. So instead of plowing first and then sowing, they would sow the seed, plow later, and then figure out, once the things start to grow, what kind of soil did that seed fall on? So Jesus is using this very common scene, this very uh, simple story for an agricultural society to hear a story like this, that 
Seed falling on different kinds of soil produces different kinds of plants is a very uh, commonplace story for this large group of people to hear. And, and we do have to remember that the, the context in this passage is that he is, Jesus is, talking to a really large group of diverse people. It tells us in verse 4 that people came from town after town. Earlier in Luke 8, it tells us that Jesus' ministry was going through town after town preaching the gospel. So you have a large group of people from all over gathered together to hear the great Jesus, this, this public speaker that you got to hear. His teaching's amazing. You have to hear the stories he tells. He stands before this large crowd and says, you know how if you sow seed on different kinds of soil, different kind of growth happens? Right. Make sense? Good. And you have a group of people looking, some of them get the message and they're nodding their head very piously. Mm, amen. Preach. And there's other people who are like, I feel like I'm supposed to understand the point of the story. I'm going to start nodding, mm, right? The reality is Jesus tells this very common story. And then at the end of the story, he says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And then he turns to his disciples, or rather his disciples come to him, Luke 8, verse 9. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom God has given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. So Jesus gives this very uh, vague uh, or, or very common story to a large group of people about sowing seed on different soils and that causing different kinds of growth for different plants. He says, if you have ears to hear, then hear it. And then his disciples come to him and say, what was that all about? Like, what's, what are you getting after, Jesus? So he turns to his disciples now, not explaining to the large crowd, but he turns to his disciples about what he was actually communicating when he told that story. In verse 11, he tells us that the meaning of the parable is that the seed is the word of God. So when, when we're Understanding this story, the sower goes out to sow the seed, and Jesus is saying that that seed that's being sown is the word of God, which is the good news of Jesus Christ and what his ministry is all about, and also what it means to listen to him when he is calling himself our Lord, what it means for us to follow him as Lord. That's the seed that's being sown. And now there's four soils. So now we're going to walk through the four different soils as Jesus explains the meaning of this parable that he told to the large crowd. First soil is the path. Verse 11, he says to the disciples, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So sower goes out, the word of God goes out, the gospel goes forward, the message of Jesus and what it means to follow him goes out. Some people are, are path people, they hear that message, but they never actually believe it. The, the imagery here is of, of a bird coming and snatching away the, the seed, right? You're at, you're at Mill Lake and the sign says, don't feed the birds and you have your loaf of bread already. And you're thinking, I, I'm gonna do this anyways, right? No one's gonna call the police, what are they gonna do? 
You start throwing the bread on the ground and all the bird, all the geese come and start eating the loaf right off of the ground. This is the imagery that the gospel is being preached, but before the seed can actually get in the soil, there's bird. The devil comes, takes away the seed so that no one can actually say, I believe that to be true. This is the, the path people are the people who never actually have faith. And because they don't believe, they are not saved. This point of the story makes it crystal clear the necessity for believing the gospel in order to have salvation. Now, it's, it's important for us to take a minute and, and realize that it's not, in this instance, it's not the, the quantity of belief that's being spoken about necessarily, as we're going to get to later when we talk about the perseverance of faith. But what's talked about here is a quality of faith or a, a reality of faith being present. This is why when uh, people talk about the thief on the cross, so when, when Jesus is being crucified, he, he, he came, he lived his life, he was killed on a cross for our sins in our place. While he was being crucified, he was crucified with two other guys, both criminals. One criminal mocking Jesus. The other criminal saying, don't mock him, he's actually the savior. And Jesus turns to this criminal who's being killed and he says to him, you will be with me in paradise because of the reality, the quality of his belief. In other words, belief is necessary for salvation. And, and we like taking uh, that, that thief on the cross story and, and putting that kind of um, experience onto all kinds of different famous people, right? There's rumors that go around in Christian circles about famous atheists who have their deathbed conversions. So much so that some of the most famous atheists have gone out of their way saying, I want to make sure that no one actually claims that happened to me. Uh, Richard Dawkins was interviewed a few years ago, and he said that he's planning on filming his deathbed moments for the sole purpose of being able to prove to people that never once did he express faith in Jesus. Christopher Hitchens, another famous atheist who passed away a few years ago, said the very same thing. He said, look, if rumors start swirling that I have some thief on the cross kind of moment, don't believe him. And when he passed away, reporters came to his, his widow and said, did he ever have a, a turning to Jesus moment? And he, she said, no, to the very end, he was persistent in his viewpoint. But the parable of the sower and the path Soil tells us is that if there is no belief, there is no salvation. What matters is the quality, the reality of the faith, that, that if it's true that Dawkins and Hitchens never actually come to belief in the gospel, that there's a distinct difference for eternity between the thief on the cross and the famous atheists. The gravity of that situation should start striking us. Because it's common for us to think, you know, it doesn't matter. God's going to get the people he wants at the end anyways. So if they die and they didn't believe, whatever, it's fine. I'm sure they were like a closet Christian or something. They didn't actually have to have faith in Jesus. It's not a big deal. But the reality is, is that the only way to be saved is to actually have faith in Jesus. So, so look, the preacher in me can't leave this moment lie because Jesus is talking to a big group of people. And he says, there's people here who are like the path people who, who haven't yet believed the gospel. And so if you're one of those people who haven't believed the gospel yet, the reality is, is you still have an opportunity to repent. 
You still have an opportunity to believe this gospel, this good news that even though you're a rebel, God's made a way for you to be reconciled and have a flourishing life for an eternity with him the way you were meant to if you'll put your trust in Jesus. If you don't, we have no hope for you. Belief is necessary for salvation. The whole purpose of sowing seed is so that you can reap a harvest. And the seed in this story represents the word of God. If the seed doesn't actually ever grow, then there is no harvest. Where there is no faith, there is no salvation. So look, Jesus is talking to a large group of people. And he says some of them are like the path and they never actually receive the gospel. There's only one soil that saves. The path is not it. Soil number two, the rocky soil. Verse 11, this is the meaning of the parable, he says to his disciples. The seed is the word of God. Verse 13, those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Jesus is saying, look, among this large group of people that just heard my story, there are the kind of people who are like the rocky soil. They'll hear my message and they'll respond with tears of joy at the good news of the gospel. And they'll say, I believe that to be true. But the reality is, is that there's no room for the roots to grow down deep. And so when trials come, they're actually going to fall away. So imagine the kind of person who goes to a summer camp and they hear the gospel being preached in one of the chapels at this summer camp and with tears they come down to the altar and they, they profess faith in Christ, that the gospel is their only hope for salvation. They come and they profess that to be true. They believe with joy. But when the trials and sorrows of life come, there's no root, and so they wither away. See, the reality is, is that suffering is either going to destroy or strengthen our faith. The testings and trials and sorrows and struggles and troubles of this life are, are like fire. They're, they're either going to have a destructive effect or a purifying effect. There's no question that the troubles are coming. The question is, what kind of effect will the troubles have on the face of the person who says with joy they believe the gospel? See, in this passage, what the result is, is the person who responds with joy at the gospel, the trouble comes and their faith withers away because there's no root. But that's not the only experience the scriptures describe. James 2, or James 1, verse 2, says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. See, the, the reality is that the fire is coming. That the testing, the trials, the struggles are coming. There's no question about that. The only question is, is will it destroy our faith or will it refine it? See, I, I think one of the major goals of Christian leadership is to help all of us prepare to deal with suffering. It's one of our, our main goals as elders and as pastors and as people who preach the Bible is to come to you and to say to you, your life will not always be easy. And for some of you, that's not a very hard thing to convince you of. 
for others. The trials may not have come yet, but they will. And look, I have to be honest with you, this is one of the main reasons why we will talk about with some frequency the the prosperity and health and wealth preachers. And sometimes we'll name them and sometimes we won't, but the motive is not to just be contrarian and say, we're different than those guys. The motive is pastoral because what they're saying to you is if you come to Jesus, you'll only have blessings. And then when the trials come, you'll look at God and say, what is this for? This isn't what I signed up for. See, they're, they're deceiving us in telling us that the Christian life is going to be one of, of always, every moment, blessing and joy and, and happiness. The, the reality is that the struggles are coming, that the trials are coming, the fire is coming. Jesus told his disciples in John 16 that, that you will have trouble. He guaranteed it. The question isn't, are we going to face troubles? The question is, what kind of effect will that have on our faith? Will it destroy it? Or will it refine it? When my wife was uh, in grade 11, her father was in a very serious accident and was in the hospital for months and months trying to well, really, for a very long time, it was unclear whether he was going to survive this accident or not. So obviously, there's a massive moment for a teenage girl to have her father in hospital visiting him day after day of him non-responsive after this accident. And one of her youth leaders came up to her one of those early days and said to her, look, we will pray and stand with you and, and pray that, that your father is healed. And then he looked right at her and said, but I have to ask you a question. If he's not, what are you going to do? Are you going to turn away from God or are you going to run to him? See, the job of Christian leadership is to ask that question. It's to not promise you sunshine and roses every single day, but to look at you in the eye and ask you the question, when the fire comes, will you run from God or run to him? The fire is coming, and the reality is that there are those like the, the people in the rocky soil who, even though they came with joy and with tears and belief, when the struggles came, they with tears looked to God and said, this is not what I signed up for, and they had their faith wither away. But the other option is that when those struggles and trials and sorrows come, you with tears in your eyes hit your knees, and you say what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, where he said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Look, that, that verse is, is crucial because you're, we're not saying that, that the struggles and trials in our life aren't afflictions, but in, in reality to, to what is coming for a joy in eternity, the, these sorrows that bombard us are light and momentary compared to the weight of the glory that awaits. The question is not, are the trials going to come? The question is what? effect will it have on our faith? 
See, those people that Jesus was addressing in the large crowd, there was people there that were rocky soil people. That the word of God would be believed at one point, but then once things got harder, they would wither away. So there's only one soil that leads to salvation, and the rocky ground is not it. Third soil is the thorns. Verse 11, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. In verse 14, the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. So here's another group of people, Jesus says, that are out there in that large crowd. Some people are going to hear the word that I say, and they're going to receive it. They're going to respond with joy like the rocky soil people did. But their, their faith is never actually going to mature. And the reason isn't because of the troubles of life. The reason is because it's, their faith is choked out by all the good things in life. All the things we place our, our minds on and think about and dwell on and pursue, the, the worries and riches and pleasures of this life, will choke out their faith and so that that plant won't actually be part of the harvest. See, I don't know if, if we in the West and in the 21st century and in an affluent area like the suburbs of Vancouver realize that the good things in life are dangers. I think we, we, we mostly operate with the viewpoint that, look, we're, if we have good things, it's because we're hashtag blessed. It's the vacation, it's the boat, it's the car, it's the house, it's the girl, it's the kids, it's the grandkids. I'm so blessed. These are all such great gifts from God, and they are, but they're also choking hazards. Right? The good things in life, the, the riches, the pleasures, the things that give us joy could also be the very things that choke out our faith. Right? You know that toy that your child got at Christmas and says, don't give to anyone who's under three because it's a choking hazard. That's the riches and pleasures of this world. It's a choking hazard. Is it necessarily going to kill you? No. Is it potentially? Yep, it's a choking hazard. That nice house that you want so desperately, that nice boat that you want so desperately, those good things in your life that you're pursuing, are they going to kill your faith? Maybe not, but maybe. It's a choking hazard. See, one of, one of the primary signs or, or primary uh, ways that people will persevere in the faith is by continuing to gather with other Christians. And yet, we are very often finding ourselves in situations where, where we would prefer to, to spend our time on a part of life that brings us joy and, and pleasure, a good thing, like sports and, and arts and other areas of, of the good creation that God has given to us. We would, we would prioritize, we want to pursue those good pleasures more than we would want to pursue things that will help us mature in our faith. See, the problem with this soil is that the plant couldn't mature. It, yeah, there was belief at one point, but then it got choked out because of all of other kinds of uh, priorities and ways you spend your time. So attending church is not just something you do on your calendar. It's one of the ways that you'll mature and ensure that the other parts of this world and this life don't actually choke out your faith because they are choking hazards. And some of you guys might be thinking, look, we're already like actually sitting in a church. 
So like, relax, right? (laughs) But look, these sermons go online. And there are people that are out there that listen to these sermons online as their only way of really connecting with Christian things. The rest of their schedule and life is prioritized on all kinds of good things. Don't, don't hear me saying that sports and arts and all other kinds of areas of life and, and joys and pleasures are bad things. They're not. They're good things, but they're choking hazards. And if the only way that you're, you're maturing in your faith is by once in a while listening to a podcast while you drive from one game to the next practice, from one event to the next event, all I'm saying is that you're dealing with a choking hazard. It might not kill your faith, or it might not kill the faith of your child, but it could. Jesus is talking to a big group of people, and he says, look, there is the kind of people who will come to faith in me, but won't ever mature because they're too fixated on the good things of this world. And their faith is choked out. The plant doesn't actually grow. Look, the whole reason that farmers sow seed is to reap a harvest, and the seed in this story represents the word of God. And if the plant gets choked out, there's nothing to actually harvest. So Jesus is talking to a big group of people, and he says, look, some of you are thorny soil. You'll come to faith, but your faith will be choked out by all the good things of this world. There's only one soil that saves, and the thorny soil is not it. Fourth soil is the good soil. Verse 11, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God, verse 15. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. So Jesus is talking to his disciples, explaining the story that he told to a large group around him. And he said that some of these people in this large crowd are good soil. They're going to hear the gospel message. They're going to come to faith in the news that I, Jesus, is saying to his disciples, am the Savior who's come to deliver them. I'm the one who through my life and through my death and through my resurrection and through my return is going to make all things new and save a people for myself. There are people out there, Jesus says to his disciples that will hear that message, that will believe that message, and will retain it. It's this active, ongoing process of reminding ourselves of this news. It's going to be something that actually sticks in them, and they're going to preserve, and by persevering, produce a crop. So it's a persistent belief in the gospel, and also a persistent living in light of the gospel. It's a recognition, in other words, that Jesus is our Savior, but he's also our Lord, and he calls us as our Lord to live in particular ways. And so the people who are on the good soil are the kind of people who say, you're my Savior and my Lord, you get to call the shots, and I'm going to live the way you call me to live. I'm not going to be perfect in it, only Jesus is perfect, but you're calling the shots. So whatever it looks like to, to, to walk in your ways, I'm going to do. Perseverance, in other words, is, uh, there, there's a book I haven't read, but it's a great title called The Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Right. That's what, that's what it looks like to be good soil, is there's a dedication over the long haul. 
to say that every day I'm gonna wake up and I'm not only gonna remind myself of the good news of who Jesus is, but I'm going to live in light of that good news and let him be the Lord who calls the shots in my life. I'm gonna be the kind of person who is continually running to actually win the prize at the end of the race. Persevering in our faith is, is marked by living as a disciple of Jesus, not just being a part of a large crowd hearing his words. One of our pastors, Pastor Ezra, uh, will often quote James 1, verse 22, when he's praying. And he'll say something like this. He'll say, Lord, uh, would you help us be doers of your word and not hearers only? Right. That's the prayer of a Christian. Not just that we'd be the kind of people who, who hear what the Bible has to say, but we would be the kind of people who have an inclination, a desire, a posture of saying, Lord, would you help me do what you're telling me to do. Not so that you'll save me, but because you already have, would you enable me by your spirit to be a doer of your word and not a hearer only? I want to live as a disciple of Jesus, as a student of Jesus. My identity now is not just that I go to church on Sundays, but I mostly pursue the good things of the world. My identity is as a student of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I want to follow him every day of my life. That's what it looks like to be good soil. But I think we, we need to take a minute, right? It's January. It's time to reevaluate some things, right? Because I think for many of us, myself included, that the primary way that we evaluate whether or not we're good soil is on the basis of, of private, personal, like, gut feelings about how we're doing. Like, I feel like I'm doing pretty good. One of the measurables we have is how am I doing in like my Bible reading plan? And how am I doing in my like quiet time? Right, all the blogs come out in January and are like, here's the way to actually nail your quiet time. Do it more and do it better. There you go. <laughs> That's basically what all the blogs wrote this last week. Now, hear me, I, I am all for taking the time to actually open up God's word by ourselves and, and read what it has to say and, and read theology books and invest in, in understanding God's word more. That, that's amazing. But we also need to recognize that having our own copy of the Bible is, is a new part of the Christian scene. There have been Christian people for hundreds and hundreds of years who didn't have people telling them to have their quiet time with the Bible at their house because there was no Bible at their house. How, how would those people be able to live a life as a student of Jesus if they didn't have their quiet time? See, the, the quiet time with the Bible is a gift from God. So yes, let's do it. But let's not be the kind of people who only judge how we're doing as a soil on the basis of our quiet time and how much we're killing it. Because the reality is, is some of us are already behind in our Bible reading plan. And we're already thinking to ourselves, man, I, I obviously don't love the Lord enough. We evaluate so often. We evaluate our spiritual life, our Christian life as a student of Jesus by how much we're absorbing. But Jesus makes it really clear that what it looks like to be a believer, to be a disciple of Jesus is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. We focus a lot on the private, personal, how does, how does my love for God look on the basis of my devotion time? 
But Jesus says, no, you need to love God and love your neighbor. It's a package deal. In other words, Christianity is far more of a community uh, faith and much more of an others-focused way of living than we often give it credit for. We evaluate our spiritual life by how well we're doing in our own spiritual disciplines, and the spiritual disciplines are good. But the call of being a disciple is not just to grow ourselves, but to be a blessing to others. See, we're called to a life of community, of actually being involved in the lives of other people. To to put it this way, uh, in the Christian life, we should be thinking that we're more like a pipe than we are a sponge. Here's what I mean by that. A sponge works by you fill it with water, right? And then you can do things with the sponge. Here's the problem. If you don't ever wring out the sponge, it gets like stinky, right? No one likes a stinky sponge. Whereas pipes don't usually smell because if they're working properly, yes, there's all kinds of water that's flowing through it, but it's flowing through it to other places. The the reality is, is that we as believers do need times where we invest in our own personal study so that we can be the kind of people who have God's word flowing through us, but we should be more like pipes and not sponges. It's not just to have the word of God absorbing in us. And that's walk around saying, I really love God because I'm killing my personal Bible plan read. No, we're the kind of people who say, look, I want to spend time in the word on my own so that I can be a blessing to those around me. Because God's called me to love him and to love my neighbor as myself. Jesus actually told his disciples that you'll know that people will know that you're my disciples by how much you kill your quiet time. Like if you do that awesome then, they, then you'll know. Actually, that was a sarcastic comment. <laughs> Jesus said, people are going to know you're my disciples if you love one another. The Christian life is necessarily a corporate, communal life. You can't be a Christian on your own, and in reality, the people around you need you as much as you need them. The Christian life is one that's meant to be communal. See, it's, it's more than just our, our private devotions and quiet time. So look, if, if, we're, if we're going to make a commitment, and look, I, I think we should. We should make commitments to spend more time in God's word. Yes and amen. More time in prayer. Yes and amen. But all I'm saying is let's make that less private and personal and more communal. Let's spend our time in the word with other people because they might help correct us in areas that we're wrong, and we might help correct them in areas where they're wrong. And instead of only viewing my spiritual life of how am I doing praying by myself, how, how am I doing by praying with the people around me? How am I not just filling up the sponge, but how am I being a pipe so that others can be actually blessed through me and I can be blessed through them? See, this is why we do things like community groups. We, we, we try to provide opportunities to make this happen for people, but you, don't, you can do it in other ways too. But if you're looking for a way to do this, we have Bible studies and community groups. Just grab one of the blue cards at any of our campuses and fill it out, and we'll try to get you in a group so that you can spend more time in God's word with God's people and be the kind of person who would actually invest not just in your own growth, but helping to learn more for the purpose of helping others so that people might know that you're a disciple of Jesus because of your love for another not just for how many times you can Instagram about how your week went with your Bible reading plan. The Christian life 
is a communal life, and the people that are on the good soil produce a crop. There's a life of being a disciple of Jesus that's not just passive, but is active as being a disciple-making disciple of Jesus that's involved in the process of the local church. See, the reason farmers sow seed is to reap a harvest. And the seed in this story represents the word of God. And if a plant produces a crop, then there's actually something to harvest. Jesus is talking to a large crowd of people and he tells his disciples that some of those people in that crowd are the good soil. That they'll believe the gospel, they'll continue to believe the gospel and they'll live in light of the gospel, living as a disciple-making disciple of Jesus. There's one soil that saves. It's the good soil. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is good and it's true because you're good and true. And you've showed us that you are good primarily through your son, that he came so that he could make a way for us to be saved. Lord, it's my prayer here this morning that for people who haven't yet put their trust in Christ, that this morning they would do that. And Lord, for the rest of us who, who have already done that, God, would you help us be the kind of people who, who don't wither away in the hard times and don't get choked out by the good parts of the world you've created, but who are focused on being a student of Jesus. You're our Savior and you're our Lord. Lord, would you work for our good, but mostly for your fame. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.